Amen. Amen. Have a seat. Thank you, band, for reminding us of that. That's why we gather together, to remind ourselves of that hope. Because all throughout the week, there are things happening in our lives. There are narratives in our world that are trying to get us to forget about that hope. They're trying to forget us to place our hope in other things. Hope to to build our lives on shifting sand that, that crumbles rather than on the rock of Jesus, rather than on the rock solid hope of the fact that hope is alive because Jesus is alive. And so wherever you are, there's hope in the sorrow, there's hope in the breaking, there's hope for this moment, there's hope for tomorrow because Jesus is alive. And so that's what that's what we remind ourselves of when we come together. That's what we remind each other of when we come together. That's what we remind ourselves and what the the, the word from God reminds us of in the scriptures that that there is real hope because Jesus is alive. So I'm so thankful that you're here to worship with us, to be reminded of that hope today. Those of you guys who are in the room, those of you guys who are joining us online, thank you guys for being here. Uh, I'm Josh. I'm one of the pastors here. And we are continuing this series today entitled Come Holy Spirit. And so here's what we're doing in this series. We're looking at the first four chapters of the book of Acts, and, and we're looking at what it looks like when the Holy Spirit comes to fill Christ's people. What does it look like when the Holy Spirit gives life? life to the church, and then begins his process of giving life to the world through the church. And today, we're actually going to look at a very vivid example of that. We're going to be in Acts chapter 3 today, and what we're going to be seeing is the first miracle that the followers of Jesus perform by the power of the Holy Spirit. So let's read about it. We're actually going to read the entire chapter, Acts chapter 3, starting at verse 1. Now, Peter and John were going up to the temple at the hour of prayer, the ninth hour, And a man lame from birth was being carried, whom they laid daily at the gate of the temple, that's called the beautiful gate, to ask alms of those entering the temple. Seeing Peter and John about to go into the temple, he asked to receive alms. And Peter directed his gaze at him, as did John, and said, look at us. And he fixed his attention on them, expecting to receive something from them. But Peter said, I have no silver and gold, but what I do have, I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise and walk. And he took him by the right hand and raised him up. And immediately his feet and his ankles were made strong. And leaping up, he stood and began to walk and enter the temple with them, walking and leaping and praising God. And all the people saw them and recognized him as the one who sat at the beautiful gate of the temple asking for alms. And they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. While he clung to Peter and John, all of the people, utterly astounded, ran together to them in the portico called Solomon's. And when Peter saw it, he addressed the people, men of Israel, why do you wonder at this? Or why do you stare at us as though by our own power or piety we have made him walk? The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers glorified his servant Jesus, whom you delivered over and denied in the presence of Pilate when he had decided to release him. But you denied the holy and righteous one and asked for a murderer to be granted to you. And you killed the author of life whom God raised from the dead. To this we are witnesses, and his name, by faith in his name, has made this man strong whom you see and know. And the faith that is through Jesus has given this man this perfect health in the presence of you all. 
And now, brothers, I know that you acted in ignorance, as did also your rulers. But what God foretold by the mouth of the prophets, that as Christ would suffer, he thus fulfilled. Repent, therefore, and turn back that your sins may be blotted out, that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, that he may send the Christ appointed for you, Jesus, whom heaven must receive until the time for restoring all things about which God spoke by the mouth of his prophets long ago. Moses said, the Lord will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. You shall listen to him in whatever he tells you. And it shall be that every soul that does not listen to that prophet shall be destroyed from the people. And all the prophets who have spoken from Samuel and all those who came after him also proclaim these days. You are the sons of the prophets and of the covenant that God has made with your fathers, saying to Abraham, and in your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. God, having raised up his servant, sent him to you first to bless you by turning every one of you from your wickedness. Now, in Acts chapter 3 today, we're going we're to be dealing with a story of divine healing, a, a miracle. And there are really two ditches that we can fall into when it comes to this question of miracles. For some of us, we can be overly skeptical of the miraculous. We, think, we look at something like this and we think, okay, that's just something those ancient, backwards, ignorant, pre-scientific people back in the dark ages believed about, but we know better today. But the truth is, if you're a follower of Jesus, if you believe that God himself stepped into human history and lived among us, if you believe that he died and rose from the dead, then believing in a miracle like this isn't really that big of a deal. I mean, if God can be born and live and die and rise again as a human being, then anything is possible. And so that's one ditch. We can be overly skeptical. But the other ditch that sometimes we fall into as Christians is that we can be overly sensational. In other words, we make it all about the miracles. The miracles become the main thing. You you see this in some aberrations of Christianity that are out there, where it's all about getting physical healing or financial healing or relational healing. It's all about getting that fancy car and that big house and your best life now. And all you got to do is send in that money and get that prayer hanky for those four easy installments of $29.99, and all these things can be yours. But that's not how the Bible looks at miracles either. The Bible teaches that miracles are real that healings are real, that there are times when the Holy Spirit breaks in in power and does miraculous things through his people, but it also teaches that the miracles are never just about the miracles. The healing is never just about the healing. The miracles always point away from themselves to something greater. The Bible calls these miracles signs. The passage we looked at last week, Acts 2.43, and awe came upon every soul and many wonders and what? And signs were being done through the apostles. And think about a sign. The whole point of a sign is that it tells you about something else. It points you to something. If you you go out to Route 20 and you see a sign with an arrow pointing you to Brockton and a sign with an arrow pointing to Fredonia, the point is not just to sit there and stare at the sign. The sign points you to the reality that there's a town in that direction. Go right, you get to Brockton. Go left, you get to Fredonia. and, And that's the way that the miracles function. The miracles are always pointing us to something else. The point is not the sign itself. The point is what it's pointing us to. And so the question for us as we look at Acts chapter 3 today, as we look at this miracle, at this healing, the question is, what's the point? What's the point? Where is this pointing us? And what you see in this miracle and what you really see in all the miracles in the Bible is that they point us in four directions. They point us upward, 
They point us forward, they point us inward, and they point us downward. Upward to the true king, forward to true hope, inward to our true need, and downward to true life. First, they point us upward, upward to the true king. Look at verse 11 again. While he clung to Peter and John, all the people, utterly astounded, ran together to them in the portico called Solomon's. And when Peter saw it, he addressed the people, men of Israel, why do you wonder at this? Or why do you stare at us as though by our own power or piety we have made him walk? The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers glorified his servant Jesus. Look down at verse 16. And by his name, by faith in his name, has made this man strong whom you see and know. And the faith that is through Jesus has given this man the perfect health that you see in the presence of you all. See, Peter says, if you want to know what's going on here, you've got to look up. Don't don't just look at me. Don't just look at us. Don't even just look at this man who's been healed, he says. Look up. Look at Jesus. Remember what we've seen in the book of Acts so far. Jesus has died. Jesus has risen from the dead. We saw in the very first chapter of Acts that he has ascended to the throne of the universe. He is reigning in heaven, but he's still working here on earth. He's poured out his spirit on his followers. He has clothed them with power from on high. The spirit has come down and filled the people of Jesus with the power and the presence of Jesus. We talked about this last week, the spirit who created the universe in Genesis 1. The spirit who caused Jesus to be born in the womb of Mary in Luke 1. The spirit who descended, who came down from above on Jesus at his baptism is the same spirit who has come down from above to fill the people of God and to send them out as agents of healing and restoration and recreation. What you see in the book of Acts is that Jesus is carrying out his mission to make all things new through his church by the power of his spirit. The healing points us upward to the risen and exalted king who's bringing healing to the world. So it points us upward, but it also points us forward. It points us forward to our true hope. Verse 6, but Peter said, I have no silver and gold, but what I do have I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise and walk. And he took him by the right hand and raised him up. And immediately his feet and his ankles were made strong. Isn't that beautiful? This man asks for money. And Peter says, I don't have any money, but I've got something better. And listen, friends, I, I don't know what you're seeking from Jesus today. Like, I don't know what you're looking for in church or, or what you're looking for in Christianity But I can promise you that Jesus wants to give you something better. It might not be what you've got in your mind right now. It might not be what you think you need. But Jesus knows exactly what you need. And Jesus wants to heal you in ways you never thought possible. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, he says, rise and walk. And then look at verse 8. The words in verse 8 are really important. So, So here's what Luke doesn't say. Luke doesn't just say the guy got up. He doesn't just say that he hobbled. He doesn't say he rolled gingerly out of bed and slowly emerged from the fetal position and tried not to aggravate his sciatica like I do in the mornings. He says that he leaped, verse 8, and leaping up, he stood and began to walk and enter the temple with them, walking and leaping and praising God. 
Now, this word leap doesn't occur very often in the Bible. It's actually a really rare word. So if, if you've read your Bible before, and especially in that context, and you read this and you hear this, you immediately recognize what Luke is doing here. He's reminding you of something that was promised through the prophet Isaiah. He's connecting this to a, pro- to a promise that God made in Isaiah 35. Isaiah 35, 6. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. This is a prophecy that points us forward to the time when the Messiah is going to renew all things in the midst of such a broken world, a world filled with pain and disease and death, Jesus tells us that something better is coming. God's kingdom is breaking into the world, that he has begun the process of restoring the world, and one day he will set all things right, and he will make all things new. And here's what that practically means for you and me as we deal with pain and suffering and loss and death in this life. It means that God hates suffering at least as much as we do. It's interesting, if you look at the miracles of Jesus and if you look at the miracles of the apostles, they're not just random acts of power. Like, they're not just spectacular attempts to impress people. Look at this cool magic trick I can do. What are they doing in the miracles? They're healing people. They're feeding people. They're they're bringing people back to life. They're alleviating pain and suffering. And there's a reason for that. It's because pain and suffering and death are not the way that it's supposed to be. God did not create a world of pain and suffering and death that came as a result of human sin and and our rebellion against God. But Jesus came to deal with all of that. He came to deal with our sin and our suffering. And that's what he shows us through these miracles. We, we tend to think that the miracles are, are a suspension of the natural order. But in God's way of thinking, it's not the healing that's unnatural. It's the suffering that's unnatural. Miracles are not a suspension of the natural order. They're a restoration of the natural order. They are instances of God putting things back the way they should be. Miracles show us that the spirit who created in the beginning is now beginning to make all things new. They're signs that God hates pain and suffering as much as we do, and he is committed to getting rid of it once and for all. And he doesn't just hate the idea of pain and suffering and death. He hates it because he's experienced it. Jesus experienced suffering and pain and death. It's not just a concept to him. It's an experience, and he's got the scars to prove it. And so so what that means is this. It means that when you hurt, he hurts with you. When you weep, he weeps with you. When you cry out, he cries out with you. When you suffer, he suffers with you with you. And so you can come to him and you can be honest about your hurt and your pain and your heartache and your disappointment. And you can know that he feels it with you. But he doesn't just hate pain and suffering and death. He doesn't just feel it with us. 